It's no surprise that updating the electricity grid today will make for a better tomorrow. Increased self-sufficiency is just one of the benefits. The Great Grid upgrade will also boost the economy and create new green jobs. And best of all, you can continue doing the things you love, like watching the latest epic nature documentary or listening to this podcast while caring for the planet too. Find out more at nationalgrid.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It takes a lot of hard work to make it look easy. This Mother's Day, Duluth Trading Co. can help you give her something that keeps up. Whether you prefer to shop online or in-store, Duluth has a motherload of gear, goods, and gifts to keep her comfortable and capable, no matter what needs doing. With Duluth's problem-solving details and legendary durability to boot, you'll finally be mom's favorite again. Check out DuluthTrading.com for all your Mother's Day gifting needs. Hello and welcome to the Country Farm Magazine podcast. My name's Fergus Collins, I'm the editor of the magazine. This month we'll be talking about the August issue, um, which is out now. And joining me in the studio are Joe Tinsley, our features editor. Hello. Dave Perrett, production editor. Hello. And our new glamorous editorial assistant, Abigail White. Hello. The theme of the August issue is, well, it's the, it's the great holiday period, summer holidays. So it's great places to go, great things to do in the countryside this month. And um, the team itself, well, we're all sort of country lovers and we love getting out and seeing bits of the countryside. But a couple of us have been up to, well, more than just touring and exploring, been rather overactive. <laughs> Perhaps, um, Joe and Abigail, you could tell us a little bit about what you've been up to and why you look so tired this morning. <laughs> How rude! <laughs> I thought I was nicely recovered, actually. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah, so, so why, why don't you start, Abigail? Okay. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I took part in the Three Peaks Challenge, which is a 24-hour challenge. And myself and about 12 others from a from my local pub, climbed three of the highest peaks in the UK, which would be Ben Nevis in Scotland, Scaffold Pike in the Lake District, and Snowdon in North Wales. Uh, <laughs> we didn't do it in the 24 hours because we all travelled together on quite a slow minibus. Excuses. <laughs> it was really slow. And oh, yeah. So the how, traffic... How long did it take you then? Um, I think we did it in about 26 hours, nice. which is... That's, that's brilliant. That's still brilliant. Still pretty amazing, really. Yeah. And which, which was the hardest mountain? Um, it was... I'd have to say it was definitely Scaffold Pike. Mm. Because 
we were all expecting it to be the easiest. So we all had it in our brains. That's that it's the English one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the smallest, but it's just, it's the steepest, the, and the ground It's just harder. covered in scree. Yeah. That's yeah. from what I remember when I used to go there as a kid. And it was freezing. Yeah. We started Scaffold Pike about five o'clock in the morning. So it was, it was really beautiful. We saw like the sun, sort of dawn and... Mm. Mm. Did you meet other people up there? I think... There were about three other teams doing it at the same time as us, so we kept sort of bumping into each other along the way. So anybody can do this. You don't yeah. need to set it. You don't need to go through a special organisation. So any any reader or, or listener could take up this challenge. Yeah. Try and beat Abigail's twenty six hours. And let us know if <laughs> how you get on. I'm exhausted just listening to Abigail. <laughs> what about you, Jay? What's your What was your um deed of the of, of the month um well last weekend uh, myself and podcast dave actually who's recording the podcast right now um we uh swam a mile and a half down the river x from topsham to turf um it's something which we um ashamed to say we tried to do last year and we um we you know we trained for several months we collected 300 pounds for charity um we ate loads of pastas for breakfast and then we um got stuck on the m5 and turned up 40 minutes late more traffic excuses more traffic excuses but it was really yeah. bad we got there just as the morris dancers were like getting in the second round and um, the town crier had already gone home and yeah really bad the swim had been swum yeah the swim had been swum so um but this year was different this year was different we set off ridiculously early in the morning uh we trained sort of long, long and hard and um yeah we managed to do it in 55 minutes which is amazing because we were doing that in about an hour and a half in the pool um but were you yeah. swimming downstream? We were swimming downstream, but it was it was a, a sort of a flat tide, um, apart from at the end when we were swimming across the tide, so we had water sort of slapping in our faces quite a bit. And we did um, get beached on a mud bank at one point, which was, um, which was fun. And it was really bizarre. Did you have to get hauled off by a sort no, of whaling No, no, we, we, we just kind of like swam, but it's really difficult to swim, and it's like swimming in a bath, you know, in a sort of few feet of water. Um, but sort of looking ahead and seeing people ahead wading... Through the same water that you're swimming is really disconcerting. <laughs> so, so yeah, we had we had mud banks and tides and things like that, but we we made it, and then we got hauled out the other side and had a pint waiting for us. Perfect, perfect. So it was good. I'm trying to, uh, Dave. What do you think? Who who's sort of achieved the biggest or the most achievons, country file achievons this month for? for, um, for I would have to say Abigail. Sorry, Jay, I think because, I'd agree. I think I'd agree because she did it for 26 hours. Although I have to say, what is the point in climbing these mountains in the dark? Surely the point is to um, see as much as possible. It enjoy wasn't it. all in the dark. Uh, Some of it was in the dark. Um, most most of the driving took place at night. Okay. Did you manage to sleep? No, no. I. Uh, I think I slept in total an hour, and and didn't eat that much either. We just, I think you appetites don't, you don't just always, went. Yeah, you lose your appetite when you're doing something so extreme as climbing mountains. And appetite for climbing only. <laughs> yes, you get it the next day though. Very committed. And you eat everything. Yeah. You can see. How sore were you the next day? Surprise! I was actually all right. We went to a beer festival like the next day, and I found myself on a bouncy castle. Just bouncing away, and people were just staring at me, going, Are you nuts? You just climbed three mountains. But yeah, I think I was fine. I think I was fine. Bouncy castles can get surprisingly tiring as well. I mean, that's. that's <laughs> How many hours were you on it for? <laughs> but I think it was a mistake just to. Well, we had a lot of curry afterwards, and yeah, a lot of beer. And, uh, and a bouncy castle. Okay, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's move swiftly on. Um, I mean, I haven't been up to anything quite as exciting as that or, or energetic, but um, 
I'm sort of interested in what other people's plans are for, for the rest of the summer. Any, Dave, have you got any sort of exciting things that you're up to? Um, yes. Um, my family and I are going on a barge, so we're very much looking forward oh, to brilliant. that. Whereabouts? On which? the uh, Langollen Canal, which is an area that I've never explored before, so looking forward to that very much. Um, I, blissful, perfect way to explore the countryside. You let the barge do it really slowly. Do you have to drive the barge? yourself yeah oh, you, have, yeah. you get taught how to do it or well you get uh, uh quick, probably five quick, minutes yeah quick <laughs> it's I think the this, button. this one for forward this one for back enjoy and try not to sink it yeah. that's one of the instructions i believe um, <laughs> so yeah i'm i need to stop my children from falling stroke jumping in one is nine so he can he can be told not to not to jump off to, to get too to close to the edge one is one so she'll need to be uh supervised yeah put in the travel cart i think I'm, I'm going on a sort of land barge, i.e. the old camper van is being dusted down and we're going to head to the Peak District with putting Junior Collins in the roof in his little tent. So um, oh, wow. we should be quite, that should be quite fun, quite interesting. So, again, I'm worried that he'll fall out, fall <laughs> off, um, disappear, we'll drive off and think we've left something behind and it's our small child but I'm, yeah, I'm hoping it's going so to be great So this adventure. month the Countryfile team have been trying not to lose their children. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Yes. And what about Abigail and Joe? Are you sort of doing anything sort of more summer holidays, more sort of traditionally summer holidays, or are you kind of conquering other things? Well, yeah, they've got a few more challenges lined up. Um, but uh, I've recently bought a kayak um, and I haven't used it that much. So my plans over the summer are to make the most of the kayak and explore as many rivers as possible. I'm lucky enough to live by the Wye and the River Lug as well. And want to explore those two rivers. Oh, great. Sounds perfect. And I'm, I'm going on holiday next week, actually, going on holiday to um, Pembrokeshire. So I'm going to stop off in the Gower and then go to Pembrokeshire. You're swimming there, aren't you, from Bristol? Yeah, yeah, I'm just going to swim. Right? So, yeah, it's fine. The, the seven estuaries, like, yeah, yeah it's grand. Excellent. Um, but yeah, we're hopefully doing quite a lot of sort of sea swimming and lounging around on beaches. Blissful. Bit Blissful. of rock pooling should be good. Oh, for summer. It's lovely. Um, <laughs> But obviously, you know, the August issue is is out now, and it's it's not just places to go. There's lots of other features and articles within the magazine. Um, why don't we sort of suggest our, our favourites? Um, Abigail, would you like to go first? What's your what's your sort of pick of the month from me? Um, I really enjoyed reading um, Daphne du Maurier's Cornwall piece, which basically um, I can't remember who it was written. It's been written by, by Nicholas Smith, yeah, not not by Daphne du Maurier. No. <laughs> But um, it's, it's sort of an exploration of, of the places that inspired Daphne. Yeah. It seems like a fascinating place. It just seems like it's a whole other world, mm. really. Um, I can see why it would inspire. And kind of bits of Cornwall that aren't necessarily the, the sort of key bits. You know, the, it's not the North Coast. It's, mm. it's, it's the sort of southern sea inlets. And, oh, it's, and it, it starts in Foy, doesn't it? Which mm. is, I, I went down there recently for another feature in a magazine and it's just such a beautiful area of the country. The harbour is just when it's when it's really still and all the boats are just sort of gently bobbing. It's 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 stunning. stunning mm, place. It's just a kind of it's a good way of seeing a traditional summer destination in a new light and mm. following in the footsteps of a of a novelist. Quite mm. a good way of having a holiday mm. and not too adventurous. <laughs> Joe, how about you? Um, well, I mean, I it's, it's my own section, so maybe, um, but I'm. Promoting your great days out again. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd have to say the great days out, which is um, summer holiday um, sort of well activities for families in the summer holidays. Um, but what we've gone for is a kind of 
nostalgic good wholesome fun kind of angle so we've got um pond dipping and bug hunting in rain and marshes in essex um the uh joe schofield and fiona danks from um who wrote make it wild are showing us how to sort of build fires you know from scratch and sort of cook bread over them building dens there's all sorts of sort of Great activities kind of encourage children to get out into the countryside yeah, again yeah. with adults' supervision. Yeah, and then the, I, I also wrote um, a feature on the, the best rock pools in the UK, which I thought was really good because I've managed to find out some good rock pool facts. Um, you know, like cushion starfish, which feed by pushing their stomachs out through, through their mouths and then absorbing their Devouring food. whatever they've come across. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, um, there's, I found out places in uh, the Gower where there's apparently still loads of gold coins to be found from this Portuguese wreck. Um, so yeah, there's lots of sort of. Where is, <laughs> where, 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 is, where, is where is that exactly? Um, uh, it's, it's somewhere somewhere in the Gower, where I'm going next week. I'll I'll let you know next week. Okay, well you won't be back. You'll be yeah. off to Rio with your <laughs> findings. <laughs> How about you, Dave? Um, my favourite feature was about um, the Cookmere Valley in Sussex, about how it's going to be reclaimed by the sea. They're going to stop building um, flood defences and let nature take its course. And people are sort of up in arms about it, aren't they? Because it's, uh, it's a really beautiful, it's a, well, it's a beauty spot, as they, as they say, but it's a lovely sort of river meander through the South Downs and yeah. it's going to be turned into salt marsh. Yeah, I've never been there, but it looks beautiful. I might try and go there before, you know, it is reclaimed by the sea. Yeah, it's, it's sort of one of those things that it's sort of managed retreat, it's called, where um, rising sea levels are making it almost impossible to defend it without spending vast amounts of money and shifting tons and tons of gravel. So, um, yeah, they decided to, the, the, the local agencies, the environment agencies, decided to let it, let it go, and um, much to the consternation of local people and, and some of the wildlife. But there is, there is a positive side to it, isn't there? If, you know, if restoring it to the way it was, mm. it'll introduce sort of more um, sort of native species, won't it? Well, yeah, so it's things like waders and wildfowl will think it's, you know, all their Christmases have come at once, mm. but the badgers are, 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 are as I say, up in arms. Up in arms. up in arms, yeah. They've got are, placards, haven't they? Absolutely. Don't flood our valley. Um, <laughs> There's a right set to. Oh, dear. Oh, that's dear. Very good. Yellow, yellow <laughs> card, you. Dave. Um, yeah, it's, it's a good feature, and it's written by one of the Natural History Unit's um, producers called Sam Hodgson, and uh, he's, he's, he's done a, a sort of final farewell canoe trip down the river that will be lost. Um, my own favourite uh, this month, or sort of favourite, it was kind of pick rather than absolute favourite, it's, it's, sort of, it's a piece looking at gamekeepers, and we found a, a very interesting character called John Cowan to talk about his life as a gamekeeper. Now, I'm interested in it because gamekeepers are often seen as the bogeymen of the countryside. They, um, there's quite a lot of bad press about gamekeepers persecuting uh, predators like foxes and crows. And it's just interesting to see the, the, the gamekeepers have been part of the country life for hundreds of years and they don't really get a chance to sort of defend their uh, way of life. So we've got John, write, John Cowan writing a piece. It's a lovely piece about um, his life in Dumfries and Galloway. Um, and in fact, I spoke to him earlier today to uh, find out a little bit more about his profession and the challenges he faces. So I'm, I'm here with John Cowan, uh, the gamekeeper from Galloway, uh, Dumfries and Galloway in Scotland, and he's written an article for us in our uh, August issue about his life as a gamekeeper. So John, tell us a little bit about um, where you live, first of all, um, the, the, the region of Dumfries and Galloway. What's it like up there? It's quite a he- heavily a forested region. It's actually one of the most forested areas of Great Britain. Um, the Galloway Hills are a sort of 
miniature highlands in many ways. If you're in here, you, it's a very, very beautiful area, a very, very large number of lochs and rivers. Um, and the, the mountains, although they're not as obviously as large, as high as in, in the highlands, they're still quite impressive. Um, it's very mild, um, one of the mildest climate in Scotland, and uh, a beautiful place to stay. Yes, I recommend it to anybody. It's not that well known. In fact, we've got an article in our next issue in September about Dumfries and Galloway. But uh, So it's a wonderful place to work, and, and, and you're outdoors most of the time, presumably. Yes, as, as much as I can get outside. You know, I don't like being contained in four walls, you know. Yes, absolutely. Well, um, you're a gamekeeper. Um, we soft sometimes get letters in the magazine that answers. Sometimes gamekeepers come under a bit of criticism for their for their role in the countryside. But as we as you state in your article, it's an age old tradition um, and an age old sort of way of life in the countryside. So, what would you say to to people who who sometimes criticise gamekeepers for perhaps for perhaps sort of controlling the wildlife around them? Well, what I would say is, you know, the minute man first cut down the tree, built a fence or, or, a, or a wall and started to contain livestock, he changed the countryside forever. And you can't really, you know, millions of years on suddenly say, you know, you can't manage the countryside. You can't, you've got to leave it to go back to nature. It'll never go back to the way it was. And because man has interfered, with nature, it's created an artificial environment. You have to manage that environment. And, and really what I think gamekeepers do is they do it in a very professional way, in a very humane way. I think that's the point I'd like to get over, that, 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 that they aren't cruel people. You know, we, we tend to be portrayed as cruel people who, you know, with their knuckles dragging along the ground, <laughs> skulking about in the undergrowth, um, trying to... to invent the most cruel way of killing everything that moves, you know I mean? And nothing could be further from the truth. Um, you know, most gamekeepers that I know, you know, they're very humane, very decent people, and uh, they do a lot of good in the countryside. Yes, I mean, uh, you've, you argue in your piece about um, how, as you're preparing uh, woodlands and you're preparing the, the, the game themselves for the shooting season, which starts starts this month in August, uh, that you're creating habitats for, for other wildlife. Could you, could you sort of describe a few of those practices? Well, most shoots, low-ground shoots, grow game crops. And these are essentially wild bird um, covers, you know I mean, which provide shelter and food for birds. Not only game birds, but a host of other birds as well, all farmland birds descend in these, especially in the situation that they had this year with the hardest winter in 30 years. If it hadn't been for gamekeepers planting these crops and also feeding the pheasants and other birds in the woods right through that hard weather, I don't know, the, the, the actual casualties of the you know small small woodland birds and hedgerow birds would, would have been enormous, and there would have been a far far fewer birds survived it than, than actually did. So, the, as a byproduct of providing food for partridges and pheasants, which you you presumably breed to 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 be shot, um, a lot of these other anim- a lot of these other birds like linnets and yellowhammers and chaffinches uh, do yeah, quite well yeah. from from the seed that drops and the seed that's left well, over. Well, all, all gamekeepers love to see, and you know, there's nothing nicer than a frosty morning um, with the weather's hard and the, gr- the ground's rock hard, and you, you feed your birds along a ride in the wood, 
and the birds come to feed, the pheasants come to feed, and also all the when, when you step back and just sit for a little minute, all the little birds descend on the feed as well. You know what I mean? And it's it's a lovely lovely sight, lovely sight to see. What about yourself? What do you get from from the job as a gamekeeper? What's what sort of why do you do it? Well, I think it's something that you're born with. Um, you know, with, with, when I was a kid, I was always interested in going out, wandering about, getting up to mischief in the countryside, going up hedges and into woods and seeing what was going on. And I did have a strong hunting instinct. You know, I liked to go shooting. I liked to go and catch rabbits and things like that, you know, and, and pigeons. And... Uh, that sort of lifestyle really appealed to me, always did. And of course, being a gamekeeper allows me to to, to follow that lifestyle. It's a perf- perfect way for me to live. Can anybody become a gamekeeper or is it something that you need years and years of training or is it sort of something that's in the family? It, it, used, it used to be handed down from father to son. Not so much now. Um, you can go on courses, you know, you can take a course at a three-year course or something at some of the colleges, agricultural colleges, to become a gamekeeper. Um, my own view is that you'd be far better to get to know a gamekeeper and start helping them out, finding out if you like the job, if, if it really was for you. But if, if you shouldn't find out if you really loved it, you know what I mean? It, there wouldn't be anything else that would, that would um, satisfy you. You'd have to have that job. And if, if you feel that way, I would say go for it. But the best plan is to go go and visit a local keeper and ask him if he needs a hand and uh, and you'll soon find out if you like it or not. Absolutely. I mean, a lot. Of, it's very appealing, this outdoors life, but I suspect there are times of year when it's yeah, quite hard work. Yeah, in wet weather especially, it can be pretty miserable, you know what I mean? And uh, a lot of the jobs are mundane. There's a lot of heavy lifting in it. Um, and they say you've got to be out. You just can't say it's a wet day. I'm not going out. You know, you've got birds to look after. You've got, you've got traps and snares to check. Doesn't matter what the weather is. You go out and do that. You know, what I mean, it's your responsibility. You can't, you can't avoid it. Yes. I mean, you you talk about all these the various jobs. In fact, your article in in Country Farm Magazine is goes through the whole year showing the sort of ups and downs the triumphs disasters and 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 the and the various things that the different tasks and skills that you need to do what what are you i mean we're we're recording this in late july what what are you up to at the moment in the gamekeeping world well the, the birds that would be shot in november you know pheasants that would be shot you're, you're in november pheasant, you're mainly a pheasant keeper aren't you yeah yeah they, they they are in the woods now you know they've just been released into the woods and they have to be looked after. You know, they really have to be cosseted for the first month or so. Um, they have to be protected because they are pretty vulnerable. They're only about the size of a a pheasant poultry, not much bigger really as a blackbird, you know what I mean? Right, okay. Um, and they, they they can't fly. Um, well, they can fly, but not very well. They're very, very vulnerable to predation from foxes, stoats. Um, and birds of prey. So you've got, to, all, all, you've got to do all you can to deter birds of prey and uh, make sure that there aren't any foxes and stoats in the area. And, and um, interesting that you mentioned keeping birds of prey off the, off the pheasants. Obviously, you know, it'd be, we need to reassure readers and listeners that gamekeepers don't, um, well, it's against the law to, to, to uh, uh, sort of disturb birds of prey or kill them. But how, how, so how do you keep them off the uh, off the pheasants. You 
you use a variety of different things. Um, there, there's fluorescent jackets, you know, these overalls, you know, the yes. the waistcoats, fluorescent waistcoats, they can be quite effective, um, especially if, if you wear it yourself. Uh, not the pheasants, you don't put it on the pheasants. <laughs> no, 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 you hang them up in a prominent position around the, the pen, you know. I see. If you, if you hang them on a coat hanger so that they, 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 they burrow around in the wind, and, you know, that can help. And if the sun hits the reflective you know, strips, it reflects back, and that can, it only works for a limited period of time, you know what I mean? Yes, yeah, yes. Um, they get wise to it, presumably. Some of them, there are other ones, um, apparently eyes, big eyes on a, on a, on a flat surface that, that are hung up and move about, apparently that, that scares them. Um, but again, it only works for a limited period of time. You've got to keep changing the deterrent all the time. Um, but gradually the birds get older, and they also they, they become cuter, and and they they realise what's happening. So they tend to, if, if you make the release pen with plenty of ground cover, so that they can escape from the birds of prey, and they're not long catching on that the bird of prey is after them. So the minute a bird of prey appears, they will dash into cover. And they will wait until he disappears before they come back out to feed, you know. So they sort of learn wild skills quite Yeah, quickly. yeah, that's basically what you're doing. You're you're gradually acclimatizing them from being a from being a, a reared bird to being a fully wild bird, you know what I mean? And presumably making them more wary or cute as you say. They um that makes them a better better sort of gives them more chance against the shooters later and probably makes that a, a more even battle between gun and pheasant. Oh yeah, um you you You've got to produce something that's worthy of, of, of a sportsman. You know, I mean, it, it, it's it's no good having something that's 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 not fit. If a bird doesn't hasn't been fed properly, hasn't been reared properly, you know, I mean, you know, ninety nine percent of guns just would, they would just look at it. They wouldn't bother. You know, if you if you actually get well bred, well reared, well looked after birds coming off a high a high hill, you know, I mean, they are very very difficult to hit. You know, I mean, it, it, is a, it is a genuinely difficult skill to actually shoot high pheasants. Mm. Um, that's one of the, the myths that, that is perpetuated, that, that, that it, they're sort of blasted out of the air at the end of the gun. You know, they are difficult to hit, and it takes a lot of skill to do it. And that's what people are looking for. They're looking for a challenge. You know, mm. they don't want to, it, It's not a mass slaughter. They're looking for a, they're looking for a, a challenge to their, to their skill, you know. And it's up to the keeper to provide that challenge. Well, John, that's absolutely wonderful to, to talk to you. And uh, I hope you have a good season this year. Um, and we look forward to, to sort of talking to you again, perhaps next year. That would be great. Wonderful. Thank nice you, John. Nice to speak to you. Thank you. So that was John Cowan. And you can read much more about his life um, as a gamekeeper in the August issue of Country Fire magazine. And that just about rounds it it up for this podcast. But join us next month for more entertaining chat about the countryside and the people who live there. Um, And just leaves us to say goodbye, really. Goodbye from all the team. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye. Happy summer.